Welcome to Mortification of Spin, a casual conversation about things that count. With Carl Truman, Todd Pruitt, and Amy Bird. Mortification of Spin is a weekly podcast from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Let's join this week's conversation. Well, welcome to Mortification of Spin. I'm Carl Truman. I'm here with my usual co-hosts, uh, Todd Pruitt and Amy Bird. And today we have a special guest on the program. It's a particular thrill for me. I first came across this gentleman's writings, I think nearly 20 years ago when I was browsing in a bookstore, came across a book with the intriguing title of A Visit to Vanity Fair, which was a, a collection of essays, which were... Well, when I bought the book, found them both stimulating and fascinating and extremely well-written, and I resolved there and then that anything I could lay my hands on by this person, I would read. Perhaps I can't myself pay him a higher compliment than saying, this person is always worth reading, even or perhaps especially when I disagree with Mm -hmm. him, because he makes me think. And that's one of the reasons why we've got him on today. Our guest is Alan Jacobs, who is the Distinguished Professor of Humanities in the Honours Program at Baylor University. And he's just published a book, How to Think, A Survival Guide for a World at Odds. And that's going to be the topic of our conversation today. So welcome to the program, Alan. Thanks for having me on, Carl. It's great to have you here. Uh, First question, this is a great book, but how on earth do I give it to my friends without insulting them with a title <laughs> we were like talking that? About this before, before we <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I actually didn't think about that until the book already came out, and then I realized <laughs> that I may have made a catastrophic error. But, uh, <laughs> but I think the way to do it is to say, I'm sure you know people who could benefit from this. Oh, yeah. that's, <laughs> that's how you would do it. And if you wish to read it, you know, then by all means do so. But this will be for your friends who don't quite live up to your expectations. <laughs> That's how to, how to sell it. Well, I subversively got it into the hands of Todd Namby by saying, let's do a podcast on it. Yeah, yeah, see, that works. It's so, all about deflection. We have to deflect the uh, assumed accusation. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a wonderful book. It's very, very short. You can read it in, in a day or two. But it's also a very personal book, Alan. I wonder mm-hmm. if you'd give us some of the background as to what motivated you to write this volume. Well, I, I think what motivated me to sit down and write it was the, the the sort of the rending of the social fabric that was happening in the 2016 election season. And then also because I, I have many British friends, Brexit was having a similar effect over there. And as I was watching people, especially on social media, you know, go after one another, I was, first of all, distressed to see the levels of hostility. But then I was also thinking... You know, a lot of these people, I was watching or listening to some of my Christian friends who were attacking people who were not Christians. And then I was listening to a number of my academic friends who were not Christians attacking Christians. And I remember having a very similar kind of response that, you know, I don't think you understand the people that you hate. Um, You despise these people. You're frustrated by them. You're hostile towards them. But I'm not sure you really understand them. They may not be exactly what you think they are. And then I realized, though I I suppose on some level I'd always known this, but it just came to my mind in a particularly forceful way that I've been in this situation my entire professional life. I've spent time trying to talk to my fellow Christians about academics. They're not quite as uniformly anti-religion as you may think they are. And then 
tried to tell my academic friends, these Christians are not as benighted and ignorant and bigoted as you think they are. And I realized I'd been doing this in one way or another all my life. And so I sat down to just sketch out a few blog posts. I thought, I'm going to write a few blog posts about how can you actually think in an environment in which there is so much heat and so little light. And as I started sketching it out, I thought, you know, I think this is more than a blog post here. And I just couldn't think about anything else. Uh, I I had another book I was working on, and I just set it aside, and I just threw myself into this and, and wrote it. You have uh, so many good lines in this book. One, right away in the beginning, you say, we have thought too much in recent years about the science of thinking and not enough about the art. I love that line. And and I was wondering, you know, do you think that the effects of the information age and the way that the Internet is physiologically changing our brains um, has something to do with this? Oh, absolutely. And, and I try to draw on the recent research in cognitive science. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one of my heroes in working through these issues is Daniel Kahneman. His book, Thinking Fast and Slow, and all the work that he did with Amos Tversky for many decades is absolutely essential. And it's great. I mean, this stuff is great at sort of laying out the cognitive biases that we are all guilty of day by day, hour by hour. I suggest early in the book, if you want to really have a downer, then just read the Wikipedia entry on cognitive biases. There are, just, <laughs> there are dozens of them, right? And it's great to know about all of this, and it's important to know about all of this. But it's also the case that that's not necessarily going to help you make the decision you need to make right now. Somebody just tweeted something that annoys you no end. And you've got to decide what you're going to do about it. You've got to decide whether you're going to respond to it, whether you're going to respond to it constructively, where you're, or respond to it angrily, or just get off the Internet altogether. And all of the cognitive science in the world is not going to help you make that decision at that moment. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted to look at a set of other traditions, some of which are literary, some of which are philosophical, some of which are theological, though I do try to kind of keep my theology with a soft towel wrapped around it um, and, and so that it's not too hurtful to people. And I want people to draw on those traditions because those are traditions that I think are very, offer some very bluntly realistic, practical understanding of the situations that we find ourselves in moment by moment. And so that way I try to supplement the scientific study with the resources of the great humanistic traditions. Alan, I was reminded, as I was first beginning your book, I was reminded of the book The Righteous Mind, which is a thicker book, but similar in some ways. Your book would be the one that I would recommend first, because it is so much more accessible. And I think that in terms of this discussion, for the average person, therefore more helpful. How would you describe kind of the thesis of this book, so that as somebody's thinking about picking it up and reading how would you kind of succinctly sum up your thesis here? I think I would, the primary way that I would put it is to say that we can think if we want to. Hmm. And this is where we can think better if we want to, but we have a lot of reasons not to, and we need to confront those and look at those as honestly as we can. Uh, I'm, I'm going to take off on, on what you just said about the righteous mind. Yeah. Jonathan Hyde's book's fantastic book, mm-hmm. fantastic book. But, you know, as I was reading it, one of the things that I was thinking is that what really needs to be done here is to confront the orientation of the human will. 
That is, the way that I differ from Jonathan Hyde, as far as I can tell anyway, is that I don't see any evidence that he has an Augustinian picture of human nature, and I do have an Augustinian picture of human nature, which means that you've got to start with the orientation of the will, and the orientation of the human will is typically and naturally towards what C.S. Lewis calls inner rings, cultivating inner rings, desiring to be part of an inner ring. And what I decided I had to do that's not really part of what Hyatt tries to do, or for that matter, what Daniel Kahneman tries to do, is to make a reorientation of the will seem desirable to people. Hmm. Because if a reorientation of the will doesn't seem desirable, no one will even set down that path. So I do have a thesis, but but I also want to emphasize that I have an approach. (laughs) And the approach is to try to make a more charitable and hospitable and gracious approach to other people seem like a desirable thing. And uh, for many people, it clearly isn't a a desirable thing right now. So I was trying to win them towards that particular point of view. Yeah, yeah. And in terms of that goal itself, what would you say has been the primary effect? I mean, Amy mentioned earlier uh just our internet culture, but on that goal that you have, what would you say has been the impact of social media? Well, I think social media is all of our social media are completely 100% inimical to thinking. And (laughs) I think that just has to be said and confronted immediately. Social media do not want us to think social media want us to respond. Mm -hmm. There was an interview just the other day with one of the engineers at Facebook who was saying, you know, we knew that we were plugging into extremely deeply rooted human desires for affirmation, confirmation, reassurance, belonging. And and we did it anyway. Mm. We did it anyway because that's where the clicks are. And so they're increasingly becoming upfront about what it is that they have done. And that is simply, there's no room for thinking in that. Absolutely no room for thinking. Yeah. Wow. Yes. Fascinating. I was reading, recently reading Tim Wu's book, The Attention Merchants. Yeah. Where he presents today's social media really as as the latest term in a long story that goes back really to the snake literally to the snake oil salesman in the 19th century it was very very disturbing uh, very disturbing read one of the central categories you use in the book alan is um, this thing you picked up from susan friend harding the repugnant cultural other it's a wonderful term and it really (laughs) captures the imagination it's how i've been referring to carl lately Well, knowing where you stand with someone is the first step. I have to say, Alan, I'm the only person in the room wearing a tie. And it's a a protest against the casual American slovenliness of my colleagues. uh, Well, uh, good luck with that. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Perhaps you'd, for the listeners, uh, like to explain the the concept of the repugnant cultural other and why it's an important concept to grasp. Yeah, it's um, so Susan Friend Harding is an anthropologist who early in her career was doing work. She decided she wanted to do a dissertation on Christian fundamentalists in America. And what she expected from her professors and from her colleagues was, you know, excitement that she was going to be doing anthropological work on a little studied (laughs) but very strange tribe. And what she found out was that they were horrified that she was even willing to give time or attention to 
these obviously repugnant people. And she thought that completely took her by surprise. She said she was effectively being asked on a regular basis, are you now or have you ever been a Christian fundamentalist? Because they couldn't imagine any reason to study Christian fundamentalists unless you had some completely unwarranted sympathy with them. And then she thought, how strange, because we're anthropologists. Aren't we supposed to be studying um, you know, people who are different than us? And that's where I bring in Scott Alexander's distinction between the outgroup and the far group. The far group we can be sympathetic to because they live in New Guinea, or they, you know, we can, oh, what fascinatingly odd customs these people have. But when they're not the far group, when in fact they live next door, then they become the out group. And then we define ourselves in many ways by our hostility to them. And that means we don't want to know more about them. They become our repugnant cultural other. They are the opposite of us. They are other to us. They are repugnant to us. And to show interest in them is to acknowledge a degree of humanity that we don't want to give. And so what Harding realized as a result of doing her work is that for anthropologists, Christians, especially fundamentalist Christians, are the repugnant cultural other, and that she had to fight against that in order to try to get her fellow anthropologists to be interested in the work that she was doing. And I thought that's really a paradigm of a lot of what's going on in our culture today and precisely what it is that I'm trying to address. Yeah, it really is. I think you can just identify with it as soon as you read that phrase. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, we were joking around about Carl being our our RCO, but I mean, (laughs) it's fascinating how you've written such a convicting book, but in a way that makes us want to read want to read more of it. And one thing, as you're talking about thinking as an art uh, that you discuss, and it's something that we often disassociate from critical thinking, which you're calling us to, is um, you say learning to feel as we should is enormously mm-hmm. helpful for learning to think as we should. Right. And so I wanted you to talk about that a little bit more and how that yeah. distinguishes the art of thinking maybe from the science. Right. There's a a wonderful passage in C.S. Lewis's The Abolition of Man, Mm -hmm. where he talks about how fundamental it is to all of the ancient models of moral development that young human beings need to be trained to desire what is desirable and to shun what is unhealthy. And they have to be trained, their feelings, their orientation of their heart has to be trained and shaped and formed before they really reach the age at which reason can fully kick in and can give them, you know, explanations for why this particular way of life is admirable or that other way of life is less admirable. And Lewis's point there is that that sort of cultivation of the feelings, cultivation of the heart, is something that modern education tends to neglect. And that's sort of where I started from. I started from this sense that people have not been have not been trained. They've not been educated to feel as they should. And I think that's especially the case with people who are self-proclaimed rationalists who think that it's just a matter of kind of lining up all the counters in the right places and then, you know, looking at the results of your moral abacus. And that's not how it works. And so, again, that gets me back to this Augustinian picture Mm -hmm. of humanity, which I start with, which is that the orientation of our will is wrong. We naturally are, as Augustine says, in coatus in se, curved in on ourselves. And so what you have to do is to try to suggest to people 
that it's valuable and good to let good people, kind people, thoughtful people draw you out of yourself. Don't be afraid of that, <laughs> but instead, you know, respond to it. And then by doing so, you can be drawn into actual thinking. Alan, there seems to be oftentimes, given the, the sad state of our public debates with people that we that we disagree with, almost a, a stubborn, deliberate incomprehension of the opposite's view, of our opponent's view, as though understanding and seeking to understand mm-hmm. their view could corrupt our, you know, pristine virtue yeah. um, in some way. And in your introduction, you reference Marilyn Robinson from her really excellent collection of essays, The Death of Adam, mm-hmm. you quote her as saying, she references the fact that unauthorized views are in effect punished by incomprehension. Right. And would you unpack that for just a moment? Because yeah. I, th- this is what I see constantly, and I've been guilty right. of it myself. Right. That's a great line, isn't it? It um, is. And so it's a means, first of all, let's just be clear about this. This is a means of self-preservation. Hmm. What we're doing is a kind of an intellect. We all all are tempted to it and all succumb at least sometimes. It's triage, right? I mean, you know, on the battlefield, the battlefield nurses and medics have to do triage. You have to figure out, you know, what do I have to deal with? What, you know, here's somebody who is seriously injured. I've got to deal with it right now. Here's somebody who's not so seriously injured. So I'll say that to later. Here's someone with trivial injury. Bye. Go on. Get out of here. Right. And and we sort of have to deal that way with the fire hose of information that's pouring in on us, a fire hose of different ideas. And so it's inevitable that in some cases we say, okay, that I'm not even going to think about. That I got too much else to think about. I have too many other, you know, options I have to consider. This one I'm not going to think about at all. But then if you're going to do that, if you're going to say, I'm not thinking about this at all, you have to justify that to yourself. How do you justify that to yourself? You do so by caricaturing that point of view. That is, you make it sound as stupid as you possibly can, because by doing so, you warrant your own declining to deal with it. And so that's why you'll often you'll you'll often see tweets like this where people will say shorter so and so. People do this to David Brooks a lot. It's really kind of interesting to me, the intensity of the hatred of David Brooks. Um, (laughs) And you think, well, he's such a moderate guy, you know, I mean, but that's why that's why he's hated, because. He presents a somewhat conservative point of view as though it were moderate and reasonable. And people go, no, 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 I don't want to go there. I don't want to think about that. So there's going to say shorter David Brooks, and then they'll translate it into something completely idiotic. You know, <laughs> they'll make it an absolute straw man. Or, and I have a, a chapter in the book on this, on what I call in other words. Mm. People will say something, and then someone will reply, oh, well, in other words. <laughs> right? And, and, of course, you're saying in other words, because now you're translating it into something that you can easily refute. Yeah. In other words, you uh, worship Satan. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay. In, other, yeah. in other words, you know, you hate Christianity, or right. you hate America, or yeah. you hate white people or you hate black people it's all simple when you do that and that's how we do the triage we have to do triage but we do it really really badly and that's the primary sin i think we commit yeah yeah one of the points you make in the chapter on repulsions alan is the Mm -hmm. the way that technology has transformed discussion and i dare to say in other words uh, (laughs) i think i think i think the point you're making is that the disembodying effect, first of all, of the printing press, and of mm-hmm. course now right. in a very radical way of the internet, 
makes right. it much easier to to lean mm-hmm. towards extremes very, very quickly yeah. for a variety of reasons. Yeah. It reminded me of a, a comment I read in George Orwell once where he talks about meeting somebody that he'd trashed in print and the person was struck at how friendly Orwell was in person and Orwell made the comment, of it, well, now I've gazed into your eyes. I, I see that you're another human being and that changes right. everything. Yeah. How do you think, you know, those of us, you're one, I'm one, Todd and Amy are the same, who our trade is essentially engaging in discussion which is disembodied because we are using print media or online media. How can we train ourselves to think, if you like, in embodied terms, even as the media we use push us in the other direction? Well, I I wish I had an answer to that because I think it is extremely difficult to do. I mentioned in the book what has been named the online disinhibition effect. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think um, every technology of communication when it's new produces that disinhibition. So you may recall that I talk about the things that Thomas More and Martin Luther said to one another, and they were so free in their insults uh, with, with one another and so unrestrained in their hostility because they simply could not perceive any integrity or honesty in the other, even if that person may have been wrong. And so I think that what we have to do is to find ways to seek out humanizing encounters with other people. And one of the things that means, it seems to me, is to look for the longest and the strongest articulations of those positions. One of the ways to overcome the disinhibition that online life produces is to have to encounter people in bigger doses, That is, when you see something developed over an argument developed over many pages or you see somebody's website and you find out, oh, you know, this person is married and has children or, you know, this person lost a loved one recently or whatever. You you try to thicken your encounter with the person. And I think the worst thing you can possibly do in that case is to respond to a single tweet by someone you don't know, because that's the thinnest possible encounter, not the thickest. Even now, they've expanded it to 240 characters. That's <laughs> yeah. changed everything now. That's, it's all different now, yeah. It's, you might as well be writing a novel. <laughs> you know, it, it's interesting because one of the thoughts I had was in just thinking about the kinds of pushback to what ought to seem like ordinary decency, you know, trying to understand yeah. what the other person is saying. But, you know, you'd want to say, look, we can labor very hard to understand what another person is saying. And that doesn't mean that you're automatically abandoning your own principles or ideas. But the very worst thing that can happen is that it would just lead to a better discussion. Well, you sharpen through that, too. Absolutely. And again, one of the things I have to train myself to do, because I'm as susceptible Mm -hmm. as anybody to some of the bad Mm -hmm. applications of this, is what you just brought up. I love that idea of the thick and the thin. That's such a great Mm -hmm. visual way to put it. Why would I not want to interact with as thick a version of this person as possible? Rather right. than as thin. And again, it goes back to the condition of my own heart. I will right. lean in towards the thin sometimes precisely because that's so much easier. Exactly. I mean, I think we have to, I, I try to own this in the book, right? That yeah. the thicker your encounter with that other person, the more you resist the in other wordsing, yeah. the more you try to genuinely entertain what that thought is, the, the more likely it is you're going to change your mind. And if you change your mind, or even if if you don't change your mind, if you just even have a few questions, 
that can be socially costly. Mm -hmm. That is, there are a lot of people who are, you know, watching you closely to make sure that you line up in every way with what they believe to be the truth about a wide range of things. And they will punish deviation from it. And so one of the things I try to do in the book is to say, look, I'm not telling you that by doing this thinking, by thinking better and understanding people more thickly, more richly, that it's going to be all kumbaya. Mm -hmm. It may not be. You may find yourself like the two young women I talk about in my first two chapters, Megan Phelps Roper and Leah Labresco, now Leah Labresco Sargent. You may find yourself having to move out of communities that had enriched you in some way. Mm. So there's a cost to this. Yeah. And I, I would just have been disingenuous for me not to acknowledge that there is a cost. That's good. Yeah. Mm. Quick question as we're sort of coming towards the end, Alan. Um, mm-hmm. And this is a more general question, not specific to the book, but you know, you're somebody I love to read. You write great prose. Do you have advice for any listeners out there who, who want to improve their writing? How can they become better writers? Yeah, I I think, well, first of all, there is no good writing without extensive reading. Mm -hmm. You just can't do it. You have to be able, you have to be willing to spend lots of time encountering voices of other writers and ideally a diverse range of voices. You know, Marilyn Robinson writes incredibly beautifully, I think, Mm -hmm. but that's one way of writing beautifully. You know, there are many others as well. So I think start with that. If you're not willing to spend a lot of time reading, your chances of developing a genuinely articulate and pleasant and interesting prose style are very slim. Secondly, I would say, just as a very practical thing, always read what you write aloud, or better yet, find somebody else to do it for you. Hmm. Kenneth Tynan, the great theater critic and theater impresario, was a very controversial radical figure, died in 1980. When he was an undergrad at Magdalen College, Oxford, his tutor was C.S. Lewis. And they didn't have much of anything in common. But Lewis was very kind to Tynan. And one of the things that Tynan said was uh, that he had, at that time, he had a very pronounced stammer. Of course, you have to go in in the Oxford tutorial system. You have to go in and read your papers aloud to your tutor. And he just couldn't get through it. And so Lewis said, well, that's fine. I'll read your paper. And so he would come in and hand his paper to Lewis, and then Lewis would read it out loud. And he said, I cannot tell you the positive effect that had on my prose style. Mm -hmm. I had to learn to try to write prose that was worthy of being read (laughs) by that voice. Yeah, that sounds horrifying. (laughs) It is horrifying. But it was also wonderful. He says that he became a magnificent writer. And he says that was because I had to listen to Lewis reading my prose aloud. So uh, you don't have Lewis, but you have somebody who reads well. Read that loud. Find out what you sound like. That will have a very wonderful effect on the flow and the smoothness and the distinctness of your voice. That's great. What great advice. Thank you, Alan, for joining us today in this interview. And we're excited that we're going to be giving away several of your books on our podcast website, mortificationofspin.org. So to our listeners, if you want to cruise on over to our website, you can enter to win one of these fabulous books. And I highly recommend it. I enjoyed it my first read, and I plan on going back to it again and, and reading more. So thank you for teaching us the art of thinking, Alan. Well, thank you for having me on. It was fun. Okay. And 
Thanks for listening. And if you'd also uh, prayerfully consider donating to our ministry while you're over there entering to win one of Alan's books, we'd really appreciate that. And we will talk to you next time. Well, in spite of all of the demands that Amy places upon our budget, what with her Lexus lease and all of the specialty chocolates and the strawberries that we have to supply every time we record, we actually have a very modest budget, and it's supplied by a group of faithful supporters, a small group. So if you would be willing to join that group of supporters, we would love to have your support. So please visit our website, mortificationofspin.org, to make a donation. It is the gifts that you make that enable us to be a strong and independent voice in the contemporary church. And we hope that you find value in Mortification of Spin and the work that we're doing here. So again, please consider giving support, and we are certainly thankful for that. Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. To read more on hard-hitting topics like this, visit the podcast page and blog at mortificationofspin.org, where we'll have links and other articles from Amy, Carl, and Todd. And while you're there, please subscribe and consider making a donation. And be sure to listen next time when Carl, Todd, and Amy talk about... It's like a total page-turner. I was away for the weekend with my family, and I kept sneaking away. I wrote this character into the book called Carl of Berms, and he is a priest, and he does like drinking their version of whiskey. Do you consider yourself to be a Christian writer or a writer who happens to be a Christian? That interview is next time. Join us then. Excellent book, by the way. Yes. Yeah, we really enjoyed it. It was a really um, fun read. Yeah. Oh, well, you know, it was good. cringeworthy at some point because mm-hmm. you think about yeah. yourself. I recognize Todd on every other page. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> <laughs>